Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome to another edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast on the Ambiguous Network. Right now, I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. I'm going to be talking about information going on with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse 2. I'm going to be talking about some information regarding HBO Max and then some of the decisions that are going on over there as it relates to some of their films that are being taken off the list and so on. I'm also going to be talking about a film that is going to be coming out before Tenet that will be the first major studio film to be put in theaters as they are coming back from the coronavirus. And for the first time in a few months, I'm going to be having my annual opening this weekend segment that hasn't been done in a few months uh, with a lot of films coming out this weekend so a few films that i'll be talking about there but the first thing that i do want to go through is some news regarding the last of us show and in honor of the video game coming out in about a week or so which is one of the most highly anticipated video games of this year of over really the last few years there was announcement in the beginning of 2020 that came out that the last of us will be show run into a television show on HBO and it seems like they have their director at least for the pilot episode of this show and it'll be Joan Rennick who was the director of every single episode of the highly acclaimed Chernobyl series last year and he also directed episodes of Breaking Bad along with The Walking Dead and he'll be reunited with Craig Marzin who show run Chernobyl and will be the showrunner for The Last of Us and it is going to be in development with the Naughty Dog developer Neil Druckmann, who did The Last of Us, who did Uncharted 4, and is really kind of somebody who takes storytelling in video gaming above all else. And he's delivered some of the great storylines of video gaming over the last few years. Again, Last of Us really is a really big hallmarker of video games for PS4, for the PlayStation, and for gamers in general because of the incredible story of this man accompanying this girl and kind of the father-daughter relationship that forms between the two of them and that's really what the heart of this show is going to be as it is with the heart of the video game and it seems like that's going to be translated into the sequel and to have Craig Marzin on board as the showrunner and to have Rennick come back to be the director at least of the pilot I think is a great combination to have because what makes Craig Marzin such a great fit for The Last of Us is the fact that he dealt with Chernobyl in a way that felt very post-apocalyptic, was a great source of information for people that maybe didn't know a lot about the event of Chernobyl and the crisis that developed in that city. He did a great job of showcasing the events, but also going into the depths of the Russian government, of espionage, of really showcasing what the truth is and saving lives instead of government and country. And I think with The Last of Us, he can develop the grand scale of those ideas of post-apocalyptic going about, going on a cross-country road trip, but also showcasing the 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 smaller details, the, the intimacy, the relationships that go into it, specifically the heart of The Last of Us being between Joel and Ellie. And there's been no rumor or no casting of the leads, which is I think is what everybody's looking forward to with this, is who is going to be playing Joel and Ellie on this television show. Because if you cast the right people for that role, I really do think that will make or break this television show because the way that people respond to at least a video game is it's great to be able to kind of be in this open world and shoot and fight zombies and 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 have fun as you would in a video game but really i think what made the last of us so special was that storyline was that emotional connection that conduit that a lot of video games haven't really had over the last few years in my mind at least i'm not a big video gamer but i'm a big fan of stories when it comes to video games and i'm always watching the 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 movie aspect of it and showcasing the story and the characters i'm really into that with the video games so when The Last of Us Part Two was announced, I got really excited for it, and I'm going to be excited to see how that storyline plays out in the journey of these two incredible characters. And to have Joe and Rennick to direct the pilot, I think having that relationship continue, they know how they work together, they work together on Chernobyl, I think is going to be really exciting. And again, there's no announcement of when this is going to come out. This is still in the very early stages of development. And it'll be interesting to see, is it the first season just going to follow the first video game and then the second season will follow the second video game or will it kind of be a combination of the two mixed in together along with some new storylines and an overarching plot that maybe isn't in the last of us video games that they that they will incorporate 
in the television show. So some questions still to be asked with the big one still being who is going to be casted as Joel and Ellie in the show as I think that is going to be a very big story day whenever that announcement comes out from HBO, from Naughty Dog, and moving forward. What do you guys think about this announcement, this news about a director, at least one director highlighted? It's not announced if he'll be directing all the episodes or if he'll be directing just this one episode. Let me know what you think down below in the comment section and leave your thoughts. Moving on to another announcement coming into a production that is getting off the ground, and that is the sequel to the critically acclaimed, highly successful Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse film. The sequel is now in production. It was announced yesterday by its lead animator, Nick Condu, that production had officially begun, and it was retweeted by Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who were the producers on Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and you can definitely tell in that first film, even though they weren't directors, they were heavily involved in the creative process of making that film, in the story, in the characters, in the animation, and it seems like they're going to be coming back to produce. However, the directing chairs are going to be changed up a little bit with this film, as the first film had three directors on this. It's just going to be one director on the second film, and it will be helmed by Jacquim Dos Santos, who was a creator and a helper on Avatar The Last Airbender, and it will be written, the script, by David Callum, who actually directed The Expendables, the Sylvester Stallone film that came out in 2010 that kind of revitalized, or not 2010, but 2012, but and, and revitalized the the action, kind of old action films, and star Jason Statham, Jet Li, and to have him kind of come in and, and do the script is really interesting because I, if this is really the only credited name that I see him with, it'll be interesting to see what he brings to a, a, a not really, well, a kid's movie because it's animation, but what made the Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse so great was it, it had that animation, it had a kid feeling to it, but it had a real emotion, a real heart to it, some great comedic laughs, some amazing action for an animated film, and some groundbreaking animation that felt that it felt lifelike in a way, but at the same time, it felt like it was taken right out of a comic book. So that really excites me for what this has for what this can be. But the one thing that I think is the big savior of this is the fact that Phil Lord and Chris Miller are still on board to at least produce this and again they produced the last film and you could see if you've watched the jump street franchise if you specifically i think also watched the lego movie you can see that the comedic moments that are in spider-man to spider-verse but also the storyline the emotion that they deliver and i think that's what makes them great directors and great creative artists and so as long as they're a part of this film and they're still a part of this franchise then it gets me more excited to see this film when it comes out on october 7 2022 if they weren't a part of this film i would be a little concerned because they're the ones that really i think kind of brought this to the forefront and of course the directors are the ones who directed they're really overseeing a lot of the stuff they're seeing the voiceovers the animation they have a lot to do with that as well but Again, like I said, the fingerprints of this film clearly have influence from Phil Lord and Chris Miller. So as long as they are still involved with this franchise and with Into the Spider-Verse 2, then it will definitely probably be on my most anticipated list when it comes out two years from now on October 7th. It'll, I think it'll be a film that is, again, highly anticipated, one that hopefully garners a lot more box office popularity than the first one did because... Even though the first one made some money, it wasn't a huge success financially as it was critically. So I hope that it evolves and expands a little bit more and we see an increase in the box office revenue. So we can see more of these films because it's not just Into the Spider-Verse 2 that's happening. It seems like Sony is creating in at least the Spider-Verse of this animated film, this animated universe, more spin-off films that we're going to get. We could be getting a Spider-Gwen movie. We could get... Uh, it seems like they're going to be doing a Spider-Gwen team-up film. They're going to be doing something potentially with neo-noir Spider-Man with Nicolas Cage, who is a standout in Into the Spider-Verse. And we can get more of the story of Miles Morales with these Spider-Verse films that I think have gotten people really accustomed to Miles Morales. Because people knew him if you read the comic books. You knew who Miles Morales was. But Into the Spider-Verse really created a plug-in for a bigger audience to see who Miles Morales was. And I think this animated film really gave people something to grasp onto. People that want to see another Spider-Man, a different Spider-Man than Peter Parker, I think really grabbed onto this. And the themes of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse were 
not just something for comic book fans, but for everybody in the case that anybody could wear the mask. Anybody can be Spider-Man. It doesn't have to be a white dude. It can be someone who's African-American, someone who's Latino, somebody who's a mix of black and Latino like Miles Morales is. It can be any single person. It can be an, an Asian-American. It can be a Ch- Chinese. It can be anybody who can wear that mask. And I think it's a universal message that Into the Spider-Verse really presented that I don't think anybody really expected but they delivered on it, and I think hopefully they can evolve from that and deliver something just as great as they did with the first film in 2018. What do you guys think about this news about Into the Spider-Verse going into production now? Let me know anything down below in the comment section and leave your thoughts. Moving on to some news regarding HBO Max, and a few weeks ago, HBO Max officially kicked off its launch, entering into the streaming wars, competing with Netflix, Disney Plus, Amazon, you're going to soon compete with Peacock. There's multiple, multiple streaming services that are competing for supremacy and trying to rival the likes of the superior king of streaming, which is Netflix. And HBO Max has a lot to offer. They have DC films. They have Turner Classic Movies. They have HBO Originals. They have great shows that they can run with, like Friends and Cartoon Network, Adult Swim, like Rick and Morty. There's an abundance of great products that I think can rival of the newcomers, at least, can do something such as Disney in terms of its grand IP and contact library, along with the originals. We have the new Anna Kendrick show, but you're also next year getting the recently announced Snyder Cut of the Justice League that I think is a good marketing conduit and a good attraction for people to go on and and see what HBO Max is all about. However, it seems like a lot of the films that maybe attracted a certain demographic, a certain market of people for HBO Max, it seems like a good content of their library will be leaving the streaming service at the end of June and at the beginning of July, and that is specifically set within the DC Universe, and there are abundance of films, not just recently, but older classical superhero films that are going to be leaving the HBO Max library, and that includes a lot of the DCEU films. Batman v Superman, Donna Justice, Wonder Woman, Suicide Squad. Then you go into the older Batman films like Batman with Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, Catwoman, Jonah Hex, and The Losers will all be leaving HBO Max at the end of June. And the only ones that will be left are Aquaman, Shazam, Joker, Green Lantern with Ryan Reynolds, and Supergirl. And when I heard this news that these... that these, these films are going to be leaving after just um, basically a month on HBO Max. I got to say, well, it, that, that can't be real. There's no way. But then credible news outlets that I, that I follow and look into were reporting on it. And sure enough, that was exactly what happened. And to me, this is just mind-boggling in the sense of, okay, you, you were tout, you've been touting these films to come on. For such an, uh, a great length of time that this was your marketing ploy, that all these films are going to be on HBO Max in one place that you can tune into, and in just one month, a at least a, a big certain amount of fan, a fan base of these films, of the DC films that are attracted to these films, that want to watch these films, that bought HBO Max to watch them, they're going to leave in a month after people paid $14.99 to, watch, to, to actually pay $14.99 to watch these films. It's just, it's really perplexing to me, and this was a a statement from a spokesperson of HBO Max, and it says, we have a collection of DC films that will rotate on the platform, we have a batch coming in July, and then another batch coming in August, so basically it seems like it's going to be taking the same route that HBO does, where a lot of the films that they have on HBO Go, HBO Now, they rotate, not maybe every month, but every few months they'll rotate in new films and older films and they'll rotate them in and rotate them out and it'll be a a a a cycle that's where i was looking for a cycle that keeps going and going and going but to me if you're really trying to market your streaming service as the one place you can find all this stuff like disney is doing right now with star wars and a majority of the marvel films then what the hell are you doing with these films how is it just you're only having 
Wonder Woman, Suicide Squad, Batman v Superman, Batman with Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson. How are those films only going to be on there for one month and then rotate out? Does this mean they're never going to come back on HBO Max again? Does this mean they'll come back on in September, August, November? What does that mean? And you're only leaving a slim amount of pickings for fans to choose from that have only come out in the last few years, minus Supergirl and Green Lantern. And so to me, it's just it's just really a, a perplexing situation. And the next question has to be, is it licensing? And I think a lot of people have been bringing this up were a lot of the licensing agreements not really kind of fully hashed out with? It didn't mean that Warner Brothers and Warner Media only were able to agree with maybe some companies that have these films, but they can't fully bring it to the forefront to HBO Max until these licensing contracts are fully expired, that maybe they were only able to rent it out for a few months, and then they have to let whoever has the actual rights to the films to let that contract play out. It seemed like they were able to get all the Harry Potter films back up and running the day of launch, and it seems like those are there to stay, and they're still with NBC Universal for when they can actually they have the television rights to them, so they can still play them on their side 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 channels like USA and Sci-Fi. So to me, it's just, it's very it's it's just a big question mark of what's going to happen with these films, and are they going to be able to to come back into the into the forefront and you're looking at right now what disney is doing with their films they have a deal with netflix right now still with some of their marvel films where thor ragnarok finished its deal last year with netflix and moved to to disney plus same thing just happened with black panther in february and it seems like this month infinity war is going to be expiring its contract on netflix and moving over to disney plus and the same thing is going to happen with ant-man and the wasp and so it gradually ended its licensing but that was something that was already in play and for disney it was able to acquire a majority of its marvel content when it first was initially set to launch you know on november 12th it was only supposed to have a few films from the mcu but about a week or two before it was set to launch on november 12th Disney and Marvel announced that they were able to get a majority of their IP back from other license, other companies that, that were licensing from them, except for Netflix, which they just have to ride that contract out, which is only really a few months left for Infinity War and for Netflix before all the MCU films are back on Disney Plus in the rightful home, minus the Spidey films, because they're still, those rights, those home media rights are still with Sony, and they're probably going to stay with Sony for the remaining future for however long Tom Holland Spider-Man is in the MCU for. So again, that th- that aspect of the story I think is really just it's just very mind-boggling in a way of, of you have these big films, you marketed these films and in a month but after HBO Max launches, it's gone. And so I think that's just very mind-perplexing to me and something that I think still needs to be addressed and and I wonder what's going to happen. I think it'll lead to future questions about this is going to happen in the next few months with other films, whether it's in DC or Turner Classic Movies. It'll be interesting to see. But one film that seems to be have just been removed the last night from HBO Max is Gone with the Wind, the 1939 all-time classic that, when adjusted for inflation, is the highest-grossing film of all time, taking off of Endgame and Titanic, which, unadjusted for inflation, are the top two highest-grossing films of all time. And... Because of everything going on with the with the death of George Floyd and the 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 protests going on about race relations around the world and and specifically in this country, it's brought up a lot of changes that seem to be going on within our whole society in general. And the entertainment society has seen a lot of changes, not just within the last week, but within the last day or two. And one of the things that seems to have caused this, or one of the things that seem to be involved in the change. Is gone with the wind, and there, this has been a controversy that has been going on for many, many years. This isn't something that just came out of the blue or came out of the last day or two. This has been a conversation ongoing for many years, and it seemed like HBO, Warner Media, wanted to do something a little different with Gone the Wind, so they decided to pull that film out of its its library at the moment. And according to a spokesperson for HBO Max, this is what they had to say about the situation. Gone with the Wind is a product of its time and to pick some of the anthetic and racial prejudices that have unfortunately excuse me unfortunately been commonplace in American society. 
these racist depictions were wrong then and are wrong today, and we felt that to keep this title up without an explanation and a denouncement of those depictions would be irresponsible. These depictions are certainly counter to Warner Media's values, so when we return the film to HBO Max, it will return with a discussion of its historical context and a denouncement of those very depictions, but it will be presented as it was originally created because to, to do otherwise would be the same as claiming these prejudices never existed. If we are to create a more just, equitable, and inclusive future, we must first acknowledge and understand our history. And a lot of it really has to do with, even though Gone with the Wind is considered a, one of the greatest films of all time, it, it really depicted slavery and white privilege in a way that is still problematic to this day and age. And I think for people that see this film nowadays, I, it makes sense to, to have more context with it. And even the history outside of the, the actual film Gone with the Wind, Hattie McDaniel, who won Best Supporting Actress and was the first ever black person to win an, an Academy Award, had to be seated away from her white castmates and had to sit all the way in the back. And even though the studio, the cast and the crew were fighting for her to sit with them, it just wasn't allowed, and even though and even though she won the Academy Award, she wasn't able to sit with them. And so Gone with the Wind has had issues with race for a very, very long time. And I'm not somebody that is for media censorship and taking things away when I think what the, the great thing about art is it, it adds so many different values and adds so many different voices. And also, because this is something that happened, this is a film that, is based off of a novel from the 1930s and was a film that came out where it was released in 1939. I think films over the years show the evolution of our culture, of our society. And so I'm all for what HBO Max is doing in terms of taking it down for a little bit and adding some historical context to it so people can reference and say, well, even though this is fictionalized, this is actually what happened during this specific time period. So I think if, if people want to add those aspects to films, I think that is a route that they could go in, but it's still a, a very slippery slope from there. But I think it's a slope that is understandable, and I can see that. But to take things off completely, I don't think is the right way to go, and that is not what is happening with Gone with the Wind, it seems like. It's just going to add more historical context. And I think for a film like Gone with the Wind is, if you're anybody that is a fan of movies, that is a fan of cinema, Gone with the Wind has to be up there in your films to at least watch. And even though it is a four-hour epic and something that will never, probably would never have been made today probably, but back in the day, Hollywood was about the epics and about the historical context and about playing these historical bio biography films and showing case these grand four-hour epic films like Ten Commandments, Ben-Hur. I think to, to watch these films just gives an idea of what filming was like back then, with how cinema portrayed the world back in that, that time period, and how cinema has evolved, how society has still evolved, even though we're dealing with a lot of these same issues today. Society has evolved in different ways, and I think it still needs to be shown, and to add historical context is a smart way to do that. And for this eight-time Academy Award-winning film, I think that's the right thing to do, and at least for right now, keep being involved with the change. Because again, this has been something that has been talked about for many years when a lot of race relations come up. This has been a, a, a topic of conversation that has been involved with it from day in and day out, basically along the lines of what is happening with the NFL and with, and with kneeling. And when it comes up to race relations, just as kneeling is talked about a lot, so is with Gone with the Wind and, and how you can take it down or change it or do something about it. And they said that they're not going to change any aspect of it, just add context, which I think is exactly what you need to do. Don't take any scenes out, just add to what you would want to do with this film and add context to it. So, and then I am all about that. What do you guys think about this? Do you think it is smart to remove Gone with the Wind from HBO Max and put some historical context to it and not add any censorship, not add anything else to it, keep the film as it is, but just add some additional elements to the film? Let me know what you think down below in the comment section and leave your thoughts below. Second to last bit of movie news that I want to talk about today before getting into the final segment, the review section of the show, I want to talk about this pretty surprise announcement that came out last night having to do with what will be the first major studio film out of the gate when theaters open back up again in July, and that is the film The Broken Heart Society set for release on July 10th. It 
was picked up for release by Sony Pictures. And this is a film that is going to be directed by, and it was directed by, Natalie Krasinski. And it stars Geraldine Vijanwathan, who was the star of Bad Education and Blockers. And Darcy Montgomery, who was the actor on Stranger Things and Power Rangers. So two great actors, especially Gwendolyn, who was the star of Bad Education, who I thought she did a terrific job on Bad Education. She really... Acting alongside Hugh Jackman and Allison Janney, I think she really stood tall against them and really shined against two major, major legends in the entertainment industry. And she really did shine in her first major film in Blockers with John Cena and Leslie Mann. So for her to be in this, I'm excited. And hearing the plot about this, which I'll read from the uh, in an excerpt that I got, the plot of this film follows the former as Lucy, an art gallery assistant living in New York City who also happens to be an emotional hoarder. After Lucy gets dumped by her latest boyfriend, she becomes inspired to create the Broken Heart Gallery, a pop-up space for the items love has left behind. Word of the gallery spreads, encouraging a movement and a fresh start for all the romantists, including Lucy herself. And to me, this sounds like another version of 500 Days of Summer a little bit. Not exactly plot for plot, but it just had a few inklings of what 500 Days of Summer turned out to be with Zooey Deschanel and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And according to Deadline, Sony really wanted to show the commitment it had to counter-programming. And counter-programming is something that happens all the time in theaters and in Hollywood. When you have a, a bunch of films come out in a, in a given weekend, a lot of it is, is programming to the bigger film that came out. And sometimes you'll have a major block, blockbuster and you'll have smaller films that can act as something else that audiences can go see. If, if people don't want to see that big film, they can go see, you know what, this film looks interesting, or actually, let's go see this film instead. And if it's if it's something where you can't get in to see the movie, you can go see those movies instead. And a, an example that always comes to mind for me about an example of counter-programming to either a big blockbuster film or just counter-programming in general was in 2015, at the very end of the year, when Star Wars The Force Awakens came out, that same weekend, there were two additional films that came out. One was a comedy from Tina Fey and Amy Poehler called Sisters, and the other one was a child's film, the sequel in the Alvin and the Chipmunks franchise at the time. And you had the big blockbuster in Star Wars The Force Awakens, but let's say if you didn't want to go see Star Wars The Force Awakens or an example of how highly anticipated that film was in 2015, tickets are selling out left and right for opening weekend or the second weekend in theaters. Let's say if you wanted to go see another film, and let's say you've seen films that have come out over the last few weeks, and you want to see something that's coming out that weekend that isn't the big film, Sisters made a lot of money for being counter-programming because there was a lot of spillover from people not being able to get tickets for at least that first opening weekend of Star Wars The Force Awakens, and the same thing happened with Alvin and the Chipmunks. So even though for the Broken Heart Society, it's not going to have the case of being the of July 10th, at least, of being counter-programming, it's going to be really the only major film that's out. But, again, like I was talking about yesterday with Tenet, if everything falls into place and Tenet does come out July 17th, I was talking yesterday about how Tenet would have all the theaters to themselves. But let's say if, let's say people want to go to the theaters, but they don't want to go see Tenet, what else is there to say? What else is there to see? There's counter-programming, a.k.a. Broken Heart Society, which is why, like Deadline was saying of what Sony wanted to show, the commitment to counter-programming, that is exactly the definition of what you would want. So it basically diverts people's attentions away from what they maybe wanted to see to something else that they can see. And basically, if you had a list of films that you wanted to go see, oh, we can't see this film? Well, B, C, and D are available that we can go see those films as well. And that is exactly what Broken Heart Society is about and I think it's it's a smart idea and I think it, Sony sees the capitalization and what they can capitalize on with this film that it shows the commitment to the theaters that they want to do and it seems like the, the studios feel confident that the, the theaters will be up and running in July and some point in July whether it's beginning of July with Russell Crowe's film Unhinged on July 1st or whether it's with Broken Heart Society, or if it's with Tenet the following weekend on July 17th. So I think it's it's just keeps on adding to the intrigue that theaters seem like they will be open 
most likely on July 17th and for the month of July. AMC announced yesterday that a lot of their operations will be open by July, presumably being ready for Tenant and Mulan when they come out at the end of the month. And going back to the Broken Heart Society for a quick second, it's being executive produced by Selena Gomez. So if Sony wanted to get trailers out there and start marketing this film, that's a big name that they can use to gravitate people, whether it's younger people or people that are more in the middle age, to go out and see this film because it's associated with Selena Gomez. And I will say about Selena Gomez is the fact that as an executive producer, I, I enjoy her music, but as an EP, she has had a good eye for some projects, specifically when it came to 13 Reasons Why. That's probably her most famous tribute to a piece of media that isn't music, and she, I think, did a good job in executive producing that, doing the best she could, having her name attached to it. I think helped draw a lot of people to that, to, to the show that premiered a few years ago, and I don't know if she has as much of an involvement as she did maybe in the first two seasons, but I think because of the eye she has for films, I think it could definitely be something that attributes people going to see this film is the name Selena Gomez. And she put out a little statement regarding the film being announced for a July 10th release date, and this is what she had to say. Hearing from more female writers and directors is very much needed. Natalie is a wonderful talent, and I am happy to be part of her debut film. I understand people's concerns regarding returning to activities we all loved prior to COVID-19. I hope everyone will listen to scientists' recommendations and consider offers others' health and safety while enjoying the movie theater experience. So again, adding to a lot of what has been constantly said throughout the weeks and months is that people are going to want to go into theaters, but... With everything still going on with the coronavirus, you're going to have to do it the smart way, and theaters are going to have to do that. People are going to have to do that, and I think that is what's hopefully going to happen, and people, are again, are still going to be hesitant to go to the movie theaters, and I think Selena Gomez sees that, and so I think this is a smart statement by her, and I think this is a smart title for her to be associated with, and her eye seems to at least have a good view of what projects to associate her name with as an executive producer. Moving on to the final bit of news I want to get into is actually speaking of the July 17th film Tenet, Kenneth Branagh, the director of this weekend's Artemis Fowl, which I'll talk about in a little bit, also has another film that is set to come out on July 17th, Tenet, and it seems like he is going to be playing the protagonist, or that seems like what the trailers have been implying to us is that he is playing the adversary to John David Washington's protagonist, and Kenneth Branagh talks about reading the script then. We've heard from Robert Pattinson and John David Washington the last few weeks talking about the script and how complex it is and how they were asking Christopher Nolan every single day about what was actually going on and trying to mask the case that they had no idea what kind of film they were making but went with it and was asking Nolan all kinds of questions. That seems to be the exact same thing that Kenneth Branagh, who worked with Christopher Nolan on his last film, Dunkirk, he has the same kind of notion as well, and this is what he had to say. I kid you not, I read the screenplay many more times than I have ever read any other thing I have ever worked on. It was like doing the Times crossword puzzle every day, I would imagine. Except the film and the screenplay didn't expect you or need you to be an expert. Given the nature of it, as Chris, to some extent, sort of renovates the wheel here. A lot of people are starting starting to engage with John David Washington's character in both expected ways, so you might expect me to be an antagonist. But then... The story doesn't quite follow what you might expect as the story plays out. So again, it just adds to the kind of topsy-turviness of how Nolan does his films. He's done it with Inception. He did it with Interstellar. I think really his most straightforward film where there weren't any kind of plot twists, there weren't any surprises, would be Dunkirk. Dunkirk, because it was about a historical event, there's no twist you can do with an historical event because it's based off of real life people and, and real life things actually happened but when he, when you get sci-fi and you get Nolan doing espionage he likes to change things up so from the trailers again I, I have an, a vague idea like it seems like many people do and even on the cast a lot of people have a vague idea of what's really going on and the only person that has a full context of an idea of what he wants to come see through with vision uh, or his vision of Tenet is the fact that he knows exactly what he wants to do, and that's Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan has it all in his head, it seems like, and even even if the actors don't know what's going on, as long as he knows what he wants to do, and hopefully that is translated well enough on screen that a lot of people aren't confused, and it's something along the lines of an inception. It seems like right now it's like comparing 
apples to oranges is that Tenet is something that is is relatable to Inception in a way. It has some kind of same tone, some kind of same aesthetics as Inception in a way that it doesn't have with Interstellar or doesn't have with Dunkirk. So I think that's the exciting thing to, to really be looking forward to with Tenet and what it can bring to the table. So just hearing these comments, it gets me excited for what I'm ready to experience with Tenet. And we'll see what happens, whether it does come out on July 17th or not. Just hearing these comments from the cast and Nolan himself gets me excited for what's to come with Tenet whenever it comes out. Moving on now to the final bit that I want to talk about here on the Sam Bissell podcast is the return of my opening this weekend segment that I haven't done in recent months because of the coronavirus. It hasn't been a lot of movies that have been coming out over the last few months, so there's really no point to go over the opening this weekend, and the last time I did it was at the beginning of March when Onward and The Way Back came out, and I didn't even do it the weekend of March 13th because that week, the theaters closed down before the the films really came out, and I knew a lot of people weren't going to go out to the theaters, so there really wasn't a point at that given moment in time, so it's been since the beginning of March that I've done one of these, and it deserves to be done because this weekend, I think, is the biggest weekend of film that I've seen since March 6th when Onward and The Way Back came out, where we have multiple films that people can go see. And and during the summer movie season, there's a time period. At the Last year, it was really at the end of May, and sometimes at the beginning of June, sometimes in July. It varies from time to time in the summer movie season, but there's always a weekend or two where there's a film for everybody. There's a genre for everybody to go see, whether it is a drama, a sci-fi film, an action-adventure, a superhero film, a comedy, a rom-com, a romantic-dramatity film. The sky's the limit sometimes, a kid's family film. And it seems like this weekend, even though a lot of people aren't going to be in the theaters to see these films, at least for moviegoers, for people that want to stay at home and watch these films, it's that kind of weekend where there is a plethora of films to choose from. The Five Bloods is one, the new Spike Lee film, King of Staten Island, and Artemis Fallon. I'm going to preview all the films. So the first one I am going to preview is the brand new Spike Lee film, The Five Bloods, directed by Academy Award winner Spike Lee, and it stars Delroy Lindo, Jonathan Majors, Clark Peters, Norm Lewis, Paul Walter Hauser, Gene Reno, and Chadwick Boseman, and it takes place during and after the Vietnam War and past and present time periods. It's about four African-American Vietnam veterans returning to Vietnam in search of the remains of their fallen squad leader who is played by Chadwick Boseman and the promise of buried treasure. These heroes battle forces of humanity and nature while confronted by the lasting ravages of the immortality of the Vietnam War. And surprisingly and coincidentally today, the first reviews for The Five Bloods came out for people to view. And as of right now on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 90% on the site. And according to the critic consensus, which conglomerates all the reviews from certain critics and kind of gives its own overview of what people have been saying about the film, this is what the critic consensus of Rotten Tomatoes had to say about The Five Bloods. Fierce energy and ambition course through The Five Bloods, coming together to fuel one of Spike Lee's most urgent and impactful films. And it's, I guess it's it's sad, but at the same time, it's very relevant and crazy to think the coincident timing of everything that the country is going through right now with the, the protests of, of African Americans and the fact that Spike Lee is one of the most vocal directors in the black community who sees himself as a visionary and who wants to talk about race relations and how even back in the day it's still prevalent to this to this very day and that's why I think what made Black Klansman such a phenomenal film and it was one of my favorites of the year when it came out in 2018 in the fact that even though it's something that happened in the 1970s the story of Ron Stallworth it's still very prevalent to the time periods we live in today and something that's still going on today with racism in what we saw in Charlottesville with 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 white supremacy in the way that it's still the course of time things are still evolving and I think one of the great things I think it could be interesting about the five bloods is the fact that you have these Vietnam veterans these these black Vietnam veterans that are fighting for this country but stateside people in the country are fighting black people and are killing black people and I think what's just what Spike Lee does very well is showcase these kind of relations of past and present 
And it seems like he's not just doing it just actually me- metaphorically with current events, but actually tying it to the past and the present. And I loved the trailer in the aspect ratios that it had. That It fits that 60s vibe really good of the aspect ratio and then expanding it to the present day, which is more HD quality, crisper. I really, really dug that. So I'm excited to see what Spike Lee does with this film. It's on Netflix, and it's a 2-hour and 34-minute film. This is a movie, and, and quite like what Netflix has done with The Irishman, with Marriage Story over the years, in which they give their artists the creative vision to do whatever they want to do. And it sounds like Spike Lee really went above and beyond to deliver the film that he wanted to deliver no matter what. And I really do wonder, with everything going on, like he did with Black Klansman, with the whole Charlottesville event that happened, if maybe this film has picture locked this week, but the last two weeks, maybe with everything going on with the murder of George Floyd and the protest, does he put something in at the very end like he did with Charlottesville that really maybe kind of adds more weight to the fire and then they had picture lock maybe this week or even last week? So I, I, it just makes me wonder about that, but I'm really excited about this film. I've been looking forward to it, and this could be one of the first potential Academy Award-looking films that we have this year, and especially in a year so far in which we've been we haven't had anything really come out in most of March, all of April, all of May. We have this big weekend, and, and this could be one of the first Academy Award-nominated films or a ca- potential Academy Award films that we see for this Oscar season. And no matter what form the Academy takes this year, I think you can't overlook Spike Lee's latest film if it really is that good. And if you look at the track of What Have You Done For Me Lately, Spike Lee's film was an Academy Award-winning film. He won his first Academy Award for Black Klansman in 2019. So I think you have to look at this film with anticipation of what he can continue moving with that momentum. So I'm excited for this film. I think Netflix, even though they said they're not going to be doing a lot of press tours and a lot of kind of shaking hands, kissing babies, a lot of award season campaigns, they are going to be doing, I think, a lot of campaigning virtually and still getting the name across for these films to come out because you want to, you want to make sure that these films get the recognition they deserve. And I think Spike Lee is one of the very first Academy Award potential films that we have for this award season. Moving on now to the second film that has been getting some little awards buzz for early in the year, or at least halfway through the year right now, and that is the new Judd Apatow film, The King of Staten Island, directed by Judd Apatow. It stars SNL, SNL member Pete Davidson, Marissa Tomei, and Bill Burr. And the plot of this is semi-based on Pete Davidson's actual life, and it centers around Pete Davidson, whose character in the film is named Scott, who has been a case of arrested development ever since his firefighter father died when he was seven. As was his younger sister heads off to college, Scott, now in his mid-twenties, spends his days smoking marijuana and hanging out with his friends. When his mother starts dating Ray, a loudmouth firefighter, it sets off a chain of events that forces Scott to grapple with his grief and starts to move forward in life. And this was another film that seeing the trailers that got me really excited because what Judd Apatow does really, really well is he makes funny comedic films, but he makes them very grounded, very real, that you can relate to these characters and delivers a very heartfelt emotional story along the line with delivering laughs. And I think that has what has made him such a unique director throughout the last two decades between the 40-year-old virgin, between Knocked Up, between Funny People, between Trainwrecked. He has delivered some really great films over the years, and it seems like a lot of people agree that this is another winner for Pete Davidson and Judd Apatow, and the Rotten Tomatoes score for this film is 77%, and the critic consensus for The King of Staten Island is, The King of Staten Island's uncertain tone and indulgent length blunt this coming-of-age dramatity's ability to find itself, but Pete Davidson's soulful performance holds it together. And I've also heard great things about the supporting cast, specifically Marissa Tomei, who plays Scott's father, and the woman, or not the woman, excuse me, the man that Marissa Tomei is dating, and that is Ray, the firefighter, played, I've heard, greatly by Bill Burr, who was in The Mandalorian last year in the sixth episode of season one, and I enjoyed his shining performance in that season and seeing a few clips of Bill Burr in this film he fits perfectly with the tone of what John Abatow is trying to create with the King of Staten Island 
And people have been talking about Pete Davidson for a long time, kind of being this star in the making that's waiting the wings to break out and that this film could be it. So it's one that I'm interested in seeing. It's a Judd Apatow film, so I think it's one that I would have seen in theaters no matter what. And for, I think, a a lot of people have been wondering, well, what should I watch on a VOD? What is worth the $19.99 to rent? It's to just rent. It's over $20 to buy a film for some of these pictures. But I think if there's one to, to actually bet on, I think it's The King of Staten Island. I think it's 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 one of those films that you can't go wrong with the director and it seems like the, the star is a star in the making and you have great performances. It seems like it's a really heartfelt story with some laughs. So I, I'm definitely going to be buying the 1999 for this film and watching it with my own two eyes and seeing what this film really is all about when it comes to The King of Staten Island one that I am very much looking forward to this upcoming weekend. Are you guys interested in it? Let me know what you think down below in the comment section and leave your thoughts. And finally, the last film that is on the weekend preview that I want to talk about is Artemis Fowl. And Artemis Fowl was supposed to come out a few weeks ago, specifically May 29th. It is directed by Kenneth Branagh, and it stars newcomer Frida Shaw, Laura McDonald, Josh Gad, Colin Farrell, and Judy Dench. And there are so far no reviews for this film. It is based off of the Elon Kohler film, or excuse me, not the Elon Kohler film, but the Elon Kohler novels that I enjoyed when I was a kid. And, and they're really based on this mastermind villain of a 11 to 12 year old boy who kind of takes, realizes this fantastical world that is out there and does it for his own devious gains. And so far, no reviews have come out. And I've seen the trailers for this film, and they just haven't done it for me so far and it doesn't get me excited for this film and the fact that Disney above all else when even if it's in COVID circumstances when you had the five bloods reviews come out today earlier this week you've had the King of Staten Island reviews come out nothing's come out for Artemis Fowl which again is a Disney film and Disney if they're confident in a film before pre-COVID they were making sure that the buzz was happening at least two weeks before a film came out so the buzz the positive buzz can start going for the film and the fact that even though this is coming out on Disney Plus it's still a major film that was supposed to have a theatrical release they haven't done anything to support this film just a few days away spells trouble for this movie and it just kind of lines up with the thoughts that I had for this film if you have kids and you have Disney Plus you probably would want to check it out maybe if you have time I mean it doesn't hurt the fact that you don't have to pay tickets to go see this in theaters and the fact that if you have Disney Plus you're already paying the money for it it doesn't hurt to watch this film unless it really does turn out to be that bad and you can't watch it anymore. But for me, I, I'll probably give this a watch during the weekend, see how it is again. I'm, I'm already, it's already being paid for already, so might as well just check it out and see how it is. And I think for me, it's it's a shame that Frida Shaw's newcomer, who's a newcomer, and I think Disney likes to kind of trot out during press tours the newcomers to the industry, and maybe he turns out to do a good performance. I'm not really sure. I I love Kenneth Branagh. I think he's really the only saving grace to this film potentially, and which a lot of the stuff that he has done has turned out to be good movies recently. And so I think for him to to put out a film like this, if anything, he's the one that maybe can turn this into a good film at least, maybe. So we'll see what happens. But I, I'm not really sure about Artemis Fowl. But again, Kenneth Branagh is a saving grace for this film. And those are the the three films that are coming out this weekend to check out. The Five Bloods on Netflix, you have The King of Staten Island on VOD, and you have Artemis Fowl on Disney+. Plus. If I had to rank the three films that I'm most looking forward to, starting from the one that I'm not looking forward to to the one that I'm very much looking forward to, number three, I would have Artemis Fowl. Again, I don't have no excitement for this film whatsoever. I'm just going to watch it this weekend to see what it's about. Number two, The King of Staten Island, which has been gaining some award season buzz potentially for the film, for Pete Davidson. We'll see what happens. And the number one film that I'm much looking forward to this weekend is The Five Bloods, which I talked to Jason about when we had our predictions and looking forward to this upcoming award season for the 2020 year, if this Academy Awards is still going on. One of the films we were talking about is Spike Lee's new film, The Five Bloods. And again, Black Klansman is one of my favorite films of 2018 when it came out, and he won an Academy Award, so I'm really interested to see what Spike Lee has to do when he has the freedom that Netflix gives creators to make, whether it's a television show or a movie, they give their artists the freedom that they want to see their vision fulfilled, and it seems like it's full-on Spike Lee on display 
with this latest Spike Lee joint. So number three, Artemis Fowl, number two, the King of Staten Island, and number one, the Five Bloods. And that is the Twitter poll question that I'm going to be putting on today at the time of this recording. What do you guys what are you guys looking forward to this weekend? If you're getting ready to watch all three of these movies, which ones are you looking forward to the most? Are you looking forward more to The Five Bloods? Are you looking forward to The King of Staten Island? Or are you looking forward to Artemis Fell? Let me know your thoughts in the Twitter poll and let me know your results on the Twitter poll. So I'll announce it in the next day or two and see what you guys think and what films or what films specifically everyone is really looking forward to seeing this upcoming weekend. So Again, even with uh, Artemis Fowl, which I'm not really excited about, the fact that we have all three of these films to get excited about, I think, adds at least a little bit, uh, a little moment in time when there has been a lot of uncertainty. You, you haven't, a lot of people haven't been able to do a lot of things they've been wanting to do. And for me, and I know for a lot of people, one of those things is seeing a lot of new movies come out. And this weekend, with everything going on, is like a special week, something that we might not get for until July again when Tenet, Mulan, and this new Broken Hearts film comes out. We might not get that for a little bit. So to have this weekend is exciting, it's refreshing, and and builds up some some anticipation for what we can get with some movies that we're able to finish on time and we're able to get the full version of these films that the artist wanted to see put out there. So again, The Five Bloods, The King of Staten Island, and Artemis Fowl. Again, I'm going to have a Twitter poll question. Let me know what your what most anticipated film you were looking forward to seeing this weekend or even the next few weeks. Which film you're looking forward to see out of these three films. Let me know what you think in the Twitter poll. But guys, that's going to do it for this edition of the Sam Pistel Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out my channel for more content. You can check me out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, SoundCloud, and much more. Also, make sure to tune in onto the Ambiguous Network, and be sure to check out the other amazing shows that are on there, such as You Mad Bro, the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis. Also, check out Gold Driven Professionals, geared toward improving client relations, return on investment, and customer acquisition costs for independent businesses and services. Also, check out our brand new show that is on the Ambiguous Network, The Daily Grind, a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson giving you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. You can check them out on the website ambiguousproduction.com, also on Facebook and Twitter at RealAmbiguous. And if you want to check out Canopy Treehouse, use the coupon code AMBIGUOUS. Also, make sure to follow me on social media when you get a chance after you follow the Ambiguous Network. You can find me on Twitter at Basel Samuel. That's B-U-S-S-E-L-L. Again, that's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. And on Facebook at Sam Basel. Thank you guys again so much, and until next time, keep on screening.